You, my friends, are listening to another Brew Theology podcast. And on this episode 43, my friend Janelle, the one and only, guides us through Brene Brown's Gifts of Imperfection. Also on this episode, my good friends Rob and Steph, along with Megan that you heard in the last episode, we get vulnerable. A lot of our episodes are all about the head, the mind. We brew theology in the pub every Thursday night, and on these episodes, you know, we get nerdy. This time, we get a little nerdy, but really, we get a little bit vulnerable. We get emotional. This episode speaks to the heart. If you like this episode or any of our episodes, please do me a huge favor. Why don't you go over to iTunes right now, rate it, review it, then go on Twitter. Share that junks, right? At brew underscore theology. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, at brew theology. I know you've heard this website many times, but it's, it's sometimes you have to hear it a hundred times to really hear it. Brewtheology.org. Go there. Look at the different ways in which you can be a partner. You can be a sponsor. You can be a monthly contributor. We have a Patreon page as well. It's so hot right now in Denver, so wherever you are in the country, it was 120 degrees in Phoenix the other day. Go get you some swag. We have tank tops, t-shirts. We have light-colored shirts, so you can get pink, blue, white, gray. We even have black for the wintertime, but right now... This summer, we are going to get hot, so hot that we're going to be in North Carolina Hot Springs at the Wild Goose Festival. Go over there and register for the Wild Goose Festival because we will be there in a couple of weeks. We have a podcast, we have a booth on the main road, and we have a presentation called Prost, P-R-O-S-T. So get your tickets, hit the promo code GOOSESTAGE17 to get yourself a discount. On that note, if you want to get a discount for something coming up called Theology Beer Camp, maybe you should email me. I might know somebody who's putting the thing on. I might know the guys who are coming to deliver the theological goods by the name of Trip Fuller and Peter Rollins. I might even be able to score you guys beer from 12 of the best craft breweries in Denver, Colorado. Two days of craft nerdum, theological goodness, cornhole, tacos, coffee from Nixon's. It's going to be a fabulous time. So get your tickets at theologybeercamp.com. Share that brew online with your friends. Again, if you like this episode, please share it on the interwebs. Love you guys. Peace. Welcome to Brew Theology, and tonight we'll be talking about the gifts of imperfection by Dr. Brene Brown. Just to be really clear, this is not our material. Uh, you can get the book, The Gifts of Imperfection, uh, on Amazon, and you can get it in, on Audible. You can also take classes with Brene Brown online to learn about this way of thinking. She also has a TEDx talk on vulnerability that's quite popular. So if you are just being introduced to this for the first time, check out any of those resources. Also, if you decide to lead this in your group, I would encourage you that at least one of your leaders has read the book and processed through it uh, before leading the group. So, what is the gifts of imperfection? Well, Brene Brown is a sociologist, and she started working on the idea of shame and how shame affects us and how shame impacts our lives. And she started collating her data And she kept running across these anomalies of people that recovered from shame in ways that seemed to be statistically significant. And so for she tells the story that for about a year, that box of uh, papers sat under her desk until finally they nagged her enough that she wanted to see what was in there. And when she dug around into these responses from people that have recovered from shame in their lives, she found that they had learned how to live wholeheartedly. And that is what the gifts of imperfection tries to help us do. 
to open the door into what it means to live a wholehearted life. In a quote from page one of the book, wholehearted living is about engaging in our lives from a place of worthiness. It means cultivating the courage, compassion, and connection to wake up in the morning and think, no matter what gets done or how much is left undone, I am enough. It's going to bed at night thinking, yes, I am imperfect and vulnerable and sometimes afraid, but that doesn't change the truth that I am also brave and worthy of love and belonging. And so her book goes on to talk about how do we live with courage, compassion, and connection. Courage being, quote, to speak one's mind by telling all one's heart, end quote. Compassion, meaning learning to treat yourself and others kindly, and with connection. And connection is, quote, the energy that exists between people when they feel seen, heard, and valued, when they can give and receive without judgment, and when they derive sustenance and strength from the relationship, end quote. It means letting go of who you think you should be and connecting with others as yourself. Another core concept of living wholeheartedly is to know that you are worthy. Um, one way she talks about this quote is a deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all women, men, and children. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong, end quote. This includes learning to love ourselves with respect and kindness. And then finally, at the heart of all of this is vulnerability. And that's being able to be honest and open about yourself with others and with yourself. So I highly recommend that you would look at the book, The Gifts of Imperfection, and her TED Talk on vulnerability. And as we go deeper into the, the gifts tonight, I'm just going to quickly read to you the chapters of the 10 gifts. Um, cultivating authenticity, letting go of what people think. Number two, cultivating self-compassion, letting go of perfectionism. Number three, cultivating a resilient spirit, letting go of numbing and powerlessness. Number four, cultivating gratitude and joy, letting go of scarcity and fear of the dark. Number five, cultivating intuition and trusting faith, letting go of the need for certainty. Number six, cultivating creativity, letting go of comparison. Number seven, cultivating play and rest, letting go of exhaustion as a status symbol and productivity as self-worth. Number eight, cultivating calm and stillness, letting go of anxiety as a lifestyle. Number nine, cultivating meaningful work, letting go of self-doubt and supposed to. And number 10, cultivating laughter, song, and dance, letting go of being cool and always being in control. And obviously, just those titles uh, challenge us, but there's so much more in the book and in the work that she does as she talks about this. And since this work, she's written three other books about uh, living more, authentic more authentically, um, getting to know who you are and living that out in your life. And so I really can't recommend her enough. Uh, she's really changed my life and um, does her work in shame has done a lot to free people uh, from the trauma that they might experience in a lot of those situations. And this includes spiritual trauma and shame that comes from conservative traditions. So if that's something that you're struggling with, I highly recommend you look uh, into her work. So tonight, we're going to talk about that. We have five of us around the table tonight. Uh, I'm Janelle, and I'll be leading and guiding the discussion. Also with me is... Ryan, grew up Southern Baptist. You know the rest. Uh, Megan, grew up evangelical, went Mormon. Now I'm not. 
I oh and hi Ma if you're listening I told you to listen hi she's not drinking beer she's being good drinking, drinking water. water I'm Stephanie I grew up Southern Baptist and then non-denominational and now I'm still searching and seeking what I believe I'm the trophy husband of Stephanie my name is Rob and uh, I also grew up very Baptist uh, went to more non-denominational and now more on the agnostic wave and kind of feeling some of the process way of thinking right now. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, so this is, this will be a fun conversation for you to listen in on because um, some of us know each other well and some of us don't. And I'm going to ask them all to be vulnerable on the radio. So, <laughs> um, so please know that we're, we're going to be as vulnerable as we feel comfortable um, and definitely, if you're leading this conversation with your pub group, um, let people come as they are. Not everyone will be comfortable to walk into this conversation right away. Um, so just be patient and let people speak as they're willing. So kind of our first question here tonight is um, being vulnerable is scary. It takes practice and it is sometimes leads to places we don't expect to go. When have you experienced vulnerability in a way that brought you life? Is vulnerability easy? And then also, where do we see Christ or other religious leaders living out vulnerability? So when have you experienced vulnerability in a good way? I don't know. I mean, being, being vulnerable is, is something that's obviously difficult for anybody, especially a, a male, a white male specifically, living in the Western world and middle upper class Texas. So it wasn't a value really, and it was sort of a sign of weakness. But if a, a time that was beneficial, it was good, it was life-giving. I did a Jerry Maguire moment at one point, you know, in the movie Jerry Maguire when he writes the memo. The next morning he puts it under people's doors and they read it. Jerry! And it's all of, you know, it's, it's how he really feels. It's not about the business. And yet everybody else knew, like, he's screwed. This guy's done. And... Mm -hmm. I had a Jerry Maguire moment where I wrote a letter to a certain church community and I thought, this is it. I felt so free and it was awesome. And after I sent it and pressed sent via email to the, uh, one of the pastors and the other people, like I knew like this was, this was it. And I didn't, get, I didn't get fired, but I ended up resigning six months later because it was mm -hmm. almost like the, a movement into a, a place of I was being way too vulnerable for what I thought uh, the, the ministry should be headed and where I was. And so... You know, that's uh, when you when you're vulnerable. There's there's definitely a cost. Yep, it's risky. Yeah, yeah. But it was it was freeing. I left six months later. <laughs> so this is Stephanie, and I I work in palliative care, and um, I often see patients with pretty serious illnesses and um, sometimes even terminal illnesses. And as a physician or provider, we're not supposed to self-disclose often, but um, I find that's the best way for me to connect with my patients and really um, be vulnerable about kind of my own struggles or my own um, circumstances um, that maybe helps connect or relate to them um, better and easier um, so they can um, maybe trust me a little bit more while we are walking through this journey of their um, illness um, together. And so um, I find by being vulnerable and open and real with them, um, I'm able to be a better um, guide and provider for them. 
and yes, it's hard. So for me, I uh, went to a seminar called Focus Seminars uh, that is a, uh, they call it a leadership training, but a lot of it is about uh, being in a room with a bunch of people you don't know and kind of working through your stuff. And it was one of the hardest things I ever did. It was one of the best things I ever did. Um, but at the core of it, before this book had been written, this is what it's about, is about learning to be authentic and vulnerable, even if that might cost you something in the workplace or in church or in your community, that the, the importance of knowing who you are and living that out is, is the best way to live life. And so it was, it was hard. Um, I still work on those lessons every day to try to live that out and honor that. Uh, but I wouldn't trade that for anything. Um, and, and just for a benchmark, it's basically cost me my career trajectory, um, my sense of who I am at points, um, and even my sense of where to go in the future. So it's not been easy, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. Anyone else? We can come back around to this later after we know each other better. I'm, I'm it's not even that I'm like afraid. I'm like trying to think of something and it's that moment. I'm like, what's that one time I was vulnerable? And I'm like, every day I'm vulnerable. Cause uh -huh. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Or like, I don't know how to work this machine. And they're probably thinking like, you stupid girl. And I'm like, I'm being vulnerable. Like, come on. But, um, I mean, I'm thinking of it in terms, sadly, sorry, I'm not on the same page as a lot of you because I'm thinking in terms of like relationships, whether it's like friendships or mm -hmm. like romantic relationships. That's what I'm thinking of when the whole vulnerability topic comes up. And so um, I think there are times that those, those are the ones that stand out the most to me, whether it was a relationship that I had with somebody or a romantic relationship or even with family. And, and um, I think the family ones are the ones that sing deepest of actually telling, telling people how, I feel like it, it's vulnerable when you let somebody know that they hurt you. Mm -hmm. um, and that happens in families all the times and in relationships. And um, I think about things that now that I'm an adult, I brought up to family members and, you know, made a point like, yeah, you hurt me or I probably like hurt you or people telling me that I've hurt them. Well, there were things I said or like, like all the cookies that, uh, that I've eaten that they've made, like maybe that really stung deep. I don't know, but like, you know, little things that maybe you don't think about. And um, I can't help but think of like moments with maybe like, like just family members and um, making things known um, and with friendships. And I, there was a friend that I, I hurt really bad. Um, not too long ago, actually. I didn't really realize that I, I hurt her so bad, but it was something that, um, um, just something I didn't think that she disagreed with. And it was something that I thought that she was all on board for. And I guess I, I didn't do it in a way that she exactly thought I would. And I, and there was a lot more I could have done and it really actually affected our friendship. And it's still, so even to this day, um, things aren't necessarily the same. And so I look back and I'm like, you know, I, I'll, I, when you apologize and you realize what you did, it's like, yeah, sometimes when, when you, put things out like that you're being vulnerable and they don't always heal themselves the way you want them to mm -hmm. and I think that's what that's what stings the most is that yeah you can be vulnerable and maybe you 
like you don't always get that awesome feel good story after of like and then we all became like even better friends or like things worked out and things got better like sometimes like yeah it totally sucks and like sometimes it does yeah sometimes those friendships aren't ever gonna be the same and like it's hard but yeah those are some some moments that that's what i think of vulnerability yeah well let's um you want to go <laughs> you don't have to <laughs> there's no peer pressure here well, I'm already feeling the pressure. Yeah, okay. so there's I mean, pressure. Come on, be vulnerable. I'm, 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 I'm getting the stink eye from Ryan across the table. Those, so. are, those are those oh are lov- lovely eyes. <laughs> I'm giving you the mm, they are the vulnerable <laughs> romantic eye. Oh, oh, oh. wow. Oh, okay, Karen. Oh wait, your wife's here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so is the cat. Come on. Oh man. All right, Rob and I have known each other for too long. Yeah. So like like Megan, like I was thinking more along the lines of like kind of relational. Um, like that's what really kind of comes to mind when I think about vulnerability. Um, you know, obviously particularly, you know, being, being married, um, and even just more recently, like I remember having a discussion at, at, uh, at Ryan's place around a, around a campfire, drinking some, some craft beer. It was intimate. It was, it was, but yeah. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I've, when I, when I think about vulnerability in those moments where I feel like I'm kind of putting all my cards out on the table and kind of exposing myself and exposing my weaknesses or exposing my, the things that I'm struggling with or the things that are just like challenging that oftentimes like it, it it almost seems like I don't want, I don't want somebody else to carry that burden, you know, like I don't want to put that on somebody else. And so, so there's a tendency to want to kind of just close off. But what's, what's, what's always interesting to me, and I don't know why I'm always surprised by it because time and time again, when I, when I'm in those moments where I allow myself to be vulnerable and I open up and share things like that's where healing begins. And that's where progression in that relationship seems to, seems to occur, you know, like steps. So I don't know, like there's like this, like, um, kind of this weight of like wanting to keep it to myself because I guess there's a fear of maybe what they may think or, um, how they may respond to what I'm, you know, um, what I'm, you know, disclosing about myself, but, uh, and, and almost every occasion, like, I feel like it's, it's always a good place to be on the other side, you know? And so, um, I think even sometimes when it doesn't turn out the way we expect, right. It still feels freeing, freeing to be honest. Sure. Um, and when loss occurs because of that, Obviously, that's painful, but I, I would almost say, I mean, I'd rather that the truth be there than, than trying to pretend that something's there that isn't. Yeah. That's but true. But it's hard. But it's hard. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, we'll, we'll step back a little bit and breathe. Um, so where do you see, um, I'll say, I, I, in the question, it says religious leaders. But let's just say really any leaders or someone in culture, where do you see people demonstrating vulnerability in, in the world that we live in, in a way that inspires you? Do we see vulnerability? I, well, I think as somebody who is a Christian, I see it in the Christ and the rabbi from Nazareth. And not just when Jesus, you know, Jesus wept, we often talk about that. But as somebody who has compassion and um, for for all people, and who's able 
able and willing to go to places that most of us wouldn't go and talk to people who would uh, obviously affect your your worth in the world. For Jesus to hang out with Samaritans and Romans and tax collectors and whores, he didn't, I mean, that was a very vulnerable place to go to these places for a connection, for this inner being relationship that's ultimately something that most of us wouldn't do because of status and worth. And so I think we see that modeled in the person who is supposed to be in charge of Christianity, the Christ. And then as a Christ follower, I don't know if I do it very well, but it's inspiring to see it in the Gospels. So, so it's inspiring. I'm just trying to make sure I understood what you said. Um, it's inspiring to to have that lesson of like him hanging out with the meek and the poor and all that. Or, or are you talking about like to to do it knowing so knowing the trajectory of his life and the cost mm-hmm. and who he would uh, who he would be identified with. So a lot of us don't identify with certain people and aren't vulnerable mostly because of society and culture and labels. And so if you're middle class, if you're upper class, if you're white, if you're conservative, whatever it is that your tradition is, you are with a certain people and you're not with other people. So Jesus didn't, he didn't care. He was vulnerable with all people, which then would have affected his influence in the higher circles. Um, yes, but supposedly he was also the sinless person. If we're vulnerable, that could lead to major problems. Maybe finding out that we did something wrong. And it takes a lot to admit to it. So there's integrity and vulnerability. And so, yeah, sorry if this sounds offensive. I don't mean it sounds offensive, but it was probably easy for Jesus to be vulnerable. Because what did he have to hide? I mean, yeah, people were like, oh, this guy is somebody that he says he's not. We're going to get him for it. Well, okay, got him, fine. You got, die him, a martyr. got him crucified eventually. Yeah, yeah. He, he died a martyr. Great glorification. So, so what I'm saying is, what do you have to hide, though? I mean, that's there's a lot more. Mm, okay, this this might sound sacrilegious. I really don't mean to sound that way. I'm just gonna say that there, I feel like there's a lot more on the table for some of us because we actually have wrongs that we. Maybe we don't know how our lives are going to turn out if they're brought to light, even if it's something you made right, um, a mistake made years ago. And yeah, maybe you can identify with somebody else, but if that comes to light, even though you've maybe had restitution for it, that could destroy your image. People look at the past. They remember that one wrong thing you did. So, Yeah, but I, what, so being vulnerable with all people is probably not wise. Yeah, true. And this goes back to secret societies. About a few months ago, we talked about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, you're not going to disclose yourself in front of all people. There's mm-hmm. certain people, family and friends that you trust, even those that you maybe that you want to trust. Mm-hmm. And you, we, yeah, we, so we could go back to Jesus. He was vulnerable to all people. Yeah. And ah, uh, yeah, that's that's a bit much. <laughs> so who do we see that's alive now that is an inspiration in their vulnerability? We don't see it. Ever, <laughs> we're a little stumped here. So I'll give a shout out um, to uh, Mike and Lisa Gunger and Mike Maharg, Science Mike, the liturgists, because I know that the that a lot of the work that they're doing right now is coming out of vulnerability. That they have struggled with the church, they've struggled with belief, 
and they're willing to get on the the podcast every week and share that and talk openly about it and share their struggles and the the cost that that's had for them and how that's imp- impacted their relationships. Um, I feel like they're meeting that mandate um, kind of in the more progressive Christian circle of, of being truthful and honest about what's going on right now for us. Yeah. So yeah, there, there are definitely people out there like that. And I'm thinking of like, constantly I'm thinking of podcasts I listen to of people that maybe had similar experiences or similar interests or things like that, 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 that I share as well. Um, people that have come from similar faith backgrounds that are talking about their difficulties and transitioning and all of that. And, and that's definitely a place where you'll find people talking about like sharing a vulnerable side of them, something that's personal. Um, but it's, I, it, it's kind of like what I hit on before a bit too. Um, not, and I'm not trying to downplay what these individuals are doing either. I think it would make a, a larger impact though. Somebody with greater possibly financial authority or political authority was more vulnerable. Unfortunately, the people that I don't even think they're making their so I don't know if this counts. Think of like, Elliot Spitzer, like people that get caught doing things and mm-hmm. then they're like, I was wrong and I messed up. And it's like, oh man, he's being so vulnerable. He's sad. And it's like, yeah, he's sad because no, he got caught. He said and he got like, caught. Elliot, you, I'm sure you listen to this podcast, Elliot Spitzer. Anyone else we can think of? No Oprah or. I was thinking Oprah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, but I don't know much. My- so I was thinking Oprah um, just because I feel like I don't know much about her life, her story. I haven't followed her in years but I mean I I feel like she's for the most part been pretty transparent with um her journey and um different things that she struggled with in life um so that was the first person that came to mind whenever I was thinking someone famous that was transparent or vulnerable well and and we should acknowledge that Brene Brown got a lot of her visibility because of Oprah so there's something that resonates there mm-hmm. at least um that there's there's good work happening here and that that was interesting enough to promote and make visible to more people. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, there's I think there are situations um where people are already famous or already in the, in the limelight and then there's others that things have happened to them that have that have drastically impacted their lives and in in what I'm, where I got this idea is um, thinking of like all these Holocaust survivors that come out and share these horrifying stories of all this crap that they live through and how they go on and they pick up their lives and, you know, it doesn't mean it's not hard for them. And I'm thinking of people like that, like mm-hmm. they're laying it all out there. I mean, you read all these Holocaust books and they're talking about how humiliating it was of like of just food conditions and sanitary conditions and you're thinking of this person and how vulnerable they are of saying yeah yeah I lived through this I went through this I I was dirty and I had lice and I was in this condition and that's being vulnerable um and it's so I think like those stories are inspiring because those are situations where it's drastically impacted and uprooted people and it's not just genocide it's financial turmoil it's all of these situations that people can come out with and and talk about it and like those 
those are those are horrible things, but it's it's some way that they're totally putting this experience out there of how it completely changed their entire lives and they lost certain parts of them and and like those are some of the biggest stories of people just being vulnerable and sharing it and publishing it for people all around the world they don't even know to hear. Yep. So maybe we can conclude from this question that being vulnerable is hard because we don't have a lot of of people that come to mind uh, when we talk about this. So let's dive in and um, look at one of her statements that she makes. Um, She says, a deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all women, men, and children. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. Do you agree or disagree with this? Where have you experienced this kind of love and belonging and where have you seen this in your faith journey? I don't think I could have answered this question three years ago. Um, but now that I have kids, um, it, it's almost like we are hardwired. Um, you know, our kids, we have two girls and um, they, I mean, are constantly vying for our affection and attention and um, acceptance and, you know, want to feel like they're belonging and, um, have that confidence and assurance that, um, we do love them and, um, that they feel secure, um, in our love. And so, um, something we talked about just that we, uh, Rob and I wanted to do in, um, the first few years of their life, um, was just to make sure that they felt that security and felt that love and felt that they could, um, you know, be vulnerable or could feel um, that this is a safe place and that they have that um, foundation um, to build on. So um, I think seeing it in the face of young young babes definitely proves that we are hardwired for that. Yeah. And, and one of the things we know from research is that people that don't experience this in childhood, um, it can have lifelong effects on their sense of belonging, their sense of security, their sense of place. And so this, this piece of vulnerability of having a place in the world starts from the very beginning, from when we were born. So when we have certain friends and, and even family members who have walls and Trust issues, typically is this, not always, but a lot of time because of parents who didn't give them that sense of belonging and love? Um, I don't know if the research would go that far, but I mean, I think definitely when people have problems attaching or um, connecting, I mean, sometimes it does go back to that. It can also come from other kinds of trauma where there's been massive amounts of rejection um, that that then it kind of becomes the expected thing and it becomes much harder to connect. Um, so it definitely, this is a huge, deep issue for a lot of us. And even we just within the context of our, our pub community here in Denver, and I've, I think I've told you this, Janelle, and probably several people, where we can have amazing content, great beer, even the best conversation you ever had in your life in an eight to 10 person circle. And yet if there's no real connection with somebody outside of that within about probably four weeks, if there's, you're not connecting with anybody around the table and you don't feel like there's a friendship happening, mm-hmm. people leave. And, I, and I've watched this. Yep. Uh, it doesn't, again, it doesn't matter how, uh, and I think this goes back to church. 
or any kind of club that you're in, people could have the best church in America, and if they're not connecting, they're going to leave. Yeah. Connecting one-on-one. Um, uh, we, we just talked about this a little bit in the last podcast about economic justice, that one of the best ways that we can help other people is to know other people, to one-on-one get to know the people that sit around you on Sunday or whatever your group is. And so if we're not making those connections, people often feel that they're not wanted or not valuable. So making those connections is important. When have you experienced this kind of love and belonging? Not to be cliche, but I've totally felt it in our group. And, and yeah, um, uh, through theology, whether it's just like, hey, I haven't seen you in a few weeks, even if like they're not like, let's go catch a movie, but it's just like, hey, like, where have you been? You could have been here. I hope everything's okay, you know? Um, I, I've definitely felt love in, in our group, um, or like that connection. I've definitely felt it. I feel, I feel a lot. Um, I feel it's like this love, um, uh, like this, I don't know that I'm going to start over cause that just going to sound weird. My uncle and I have a really great relationship. Um, and he doesn't have children and he's not married. Um, He's older than my father. I think he's the first on my dad's side. And my uncle and I have this really great connection. He's probably one of the people like I text the most. I, he's, he's probably, he's, I don't know. He's in his sixties. Um, but we have this connection and I, I don't, I don't really know if anybody else or anybody among like my cousins has this connection with him. And, and, and I think that, I don't know why this is what comes to mind with this question of like feeling love mm-hmm. in my uncle lives out in Staten Island and uh, in New York and I haven't seen him in over a year, but there's like, I still know that there's this, there's this mutual like love for each other. And I don't know. That's something that, I don't know. It's what came to my mind. I doubt my uncle's going to listen to this either, but if he does, like, I love you Tia. (laughs) But you know, like um, that's something that's something that I've, I've felt. And um, where you can feel like you're loved, even when you're not there, I think that that's, or you feel something even when mm-hmm. you're not there. I think that that is a sign that there's definitely more than just like a mutual acquaintance or a friendship or just like, I don't know, that person you're related to. Um, I, I would agree with the statement in that, yeah, I, I think we all do need to, f- I know we all need to feel that, that love, um, whether it's in between one person or just a community there's different types of love there's all different types of love and um if you can feel it at least in one one sense that's that can be good enough to push you through hard things yep and it sounds so sappy i know it sounds like that chicken noodle soup for the soul book but like i think it's true like sounds like some lame thing but i i I believe it awesome (laughs) Where else have you felt this? So I'll try to make sense of this. Um, So one of the things that I think about in terms of kind of my spiritual heritage and growing up and how things have kind of changed for me over the years is I think at one point in time, probably a decade ago, you know, I, I would have, I would have said that, you know, my greatest love of all is my relationship with, with, with God or with the Lord or, um, you know, and I feel like there was so much like conditioning within the church communities that I was a part of at the time that like, 
they kind of reinforce that relationship, that kind of love affair, like, like, uh, you're married to Christ and all those sorts of like kind of analogies and, and, and the such. Um, and so, I don't know, I'm just kind of thinking around that idea and how that has like, uh, very much changed for me now at this point. And I, I kind of feel like in terms of where I'm at and what I'm looking for in, in, if I were to reconnect with a, with a church community of, of sorts is the, the really the only thing that I miss is like the community itself, you know, like the, the relationships that I had with the people, you know, and like, that's, what's important to me. And so, um, so I don't know, I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but, um, but I don't know, just kind of coming out of that place of kind of having this sort of relationship with God. That's like my, my love, you know, and now I'm kind of in a more eh, agnostic, eh, not, not so sure Yeah, that that relationship's even, um, um, a possibility that God is a relational God, if that makes sense. Yeah. I know that, um, that Baird and I, this is when we were still pretty much in the nest of evangelicalism. We ended up at a Spanish church in Kansas city and that community piece Okay, we didn't speak the language, like, because the teens don't need that you can teach them in English. So we didn't have to know Spanish. And many of the congregation members could not even really talk to us. Um, but they loved us. And they didn't have to, um, because they had seminarians coming and going like every six months to a year. They had no reason to care about us. And that has continued to be through all of the changes, a lot like yours, like kind of kind of leaving the church the way it was and kind of being in a different space now. But that community, that was God. That was, we, they made us belong even when we clearly did not belong. Like we were, we were the most like white, privileged, snotty kids in that community. We didn't deserve their love. Um, and they gave it anyway, and it's really hard to find that. But I agree with you. Like that's, and and I do go to a church here, and it's a great community, but I haven't found quite those same kinds of connections, and I miss that. As somebody who is a connector and an extrovert, and needing to have social interactions pretty much all the time, constantly. Yeah, it, it happens, <laughs> and I, and I do look for it. But today, I so I went to Starbucks today, and I apologize. I don't usually go to Starbucks, but it was the closest coffee shop nearby, closest to my daughter's VBS that I was picking her up to. So as I went there, I noticed there was a church staff, and I have what I call Godar. I can ch- I can see when there's a Christian group doing Jesus things. You can, I look for tattoos and crosses and books, and and it was a pastor with his meeting of his people. And there was a moment where I, I looked over as I was walking in, and I thought, I miss that. And then as I walked out going, oh, shit, I really don't miss that. Because, okay, for two two different reasons. But the thing that I do miss was that at least in the church world, working there full-time, being in the office every day of the week, was that you're hanging out with your people. Mm -hmm. Now, I still have people that I hang out with, and it's great. But in the church world, like that's what you're doing. You're working, and you love the Sunday morning programs and whatever, the, the weekend programs that you put on and the summer programs. But ultimately, it was about the people at the office. And so I watched these people and they're, I don't know what they were talking about, but, it, and I was right. It was a church group because then the worship came up. The word worship, I go, uh-huh. oh, bingo. 
There yep. was. I had the Gadar all along. And yeah, I yeah, I miss it. So, so I have some buddies and I that we we actually text and we all we used to work together back in the same office and one of the guys works in a church and then the other guy's freelance and then and then there's me and I do the pub thing. So the pub thing's great, but it's only one night out of the week. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I just want to add I also miss that stuff. I mean, I think this is my vulnerable moment, but yeah, I miss I miss that. I'm I miss early morning seminary and I miss I I miss that. I miss being able to go to to a chapel out in another state and and they're still welcoming like, oh Sister Ramirez, like, you know, what ward are you from and what stake? And and um yeah, I, I miss that stuff sometimes. But um one thing that I've I've learned, there there's so many like pure hearted people. Like there's so many pure hearted, loving people that really would do something, do anything for you. Um, but I also learned that when I left that faith community and I left Mormonism, that um, some relationships didn't stay the same. Some relationships didn't really last, even if I tried. And um, I think that that proves a little bit more to what relationship I had or what impression I was under. And I, and I, I say this of like, not to be insulting either, but I, I realized like who my true friends were. And I'm not even saying that to be against those that maybe you fell out with because yeah, we had that thing in common and it's no longer there. And it doesn't mean that you weren't real or I wasn't real, but it was a good time that we enjoyed together, but we didn't have that personal connection that I had with other people. And some of those friendships lasted. Some of those people I still look at, like one of the ladies I messaged last week, I still look at her as like my other mom. And and I know that even when I, when I go see her, when I go see her in a week and a half and I'm like, Hey, I'm not Mormon anymore. Like she'll probably be like, I still love you, you know? <laughs> and so like some of those relationships are real and some aren't. And it's not, it's, it's not bad. It doesn't make either one of the people less credible or less loving. It's just that connection was on the same level. And so I'd, I'd say like in some of those other church groups, like, like that you guys are relating to, yeah, like those, some of those relationships are real and some of them last and some of them do. And like, that's kind of what, that's kind of what hurts is like some of those relationships that don't last doesn't make either one of you bad. It's just like things just don't always work out. It's just out. hard. Yeah. Yeah. Turn a yeah, page. There, there are seasons too. And that's why people probably get jaded. Yeah. Is because they go, what was that? I thought we were close and you were close, mm -hmm. but now is a new season. It's different. Yeah. yeah. So in the face of that, um, the third question is what are ways that you cultivate courage, compassion, and connection in your life now? So I'll go with, I'll, I'll steal Meg, Meg, Megan, Megan's, Megan. Megan's answer. Um, Dan, you can fix that. Megan's it's, answer. It's Megan. Um, that brew theology has uh, been so much of that for me at this point in my life. Um, I just, you know, Ryan gets all weirded out when I say this on the podcast, but he really has been key to my my life transition right now. I've been kind of moving outside of um, a trajectory that I was on in ministry and not knowing what to do and um, have been facing some chronic health issues, which he's been very understanding about. And he has made space for me as a woman faith leader to be part of this community. And I honestly don't know where I would be without brew theology. Um, these are my best friends in Denver and I love them, and I'm so thankful to know them and to get to learn more about things that I didn't know anything about. 
um, having friends with different perspectives. Um, Liz, who you hear on the podcast a lot, being in this her Buddhist tradition, like she says things to me that I would never think of that way, but it's so important for me to think of that way and to really analyze from a different angle. Um, and being able to maintain connection with friends that um, drew me into this, um, that were from another congregation and we all ended up here. Um, and so I just, I think the work that we do here is awesome because it part of what we do is bring people together that need each other in weird faith places. Um, and when that's been, as you can hear from many of us, it's been a huge part of our life and then it kind of all falls apart. Being able to find that connection again um, can make all the difference in moving forward, even if it's not into like a new doctrine, but just moving forward as humans who believe in something beyond themselves. Um, it's, it's transformed my life. So thanks, Ryan. Oh, well, thank you. Ditto. I would say the same thing. <laughs> you were vulnerable for both of us. Okay. <laughs> what else? How do you build courage, compassion, and connection in your life? I've heard for doctors that can be a real challenge. I have a very good friend um, who has been in his job now for over a year and is still having a hard time finding friendship in the midst of that. I would say the opposite. Okay. That's actually cool. where I thrive. Um, and like I said, palliative care is my purpose is to find quality of life for people. And so I, it's very relational and I get to connect with people physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and figure out, you know, who they are and then develop treatment plans based on who they are. And so, and I work as a team. Um, it is a true interdisciplinary team approach. And so, um, you know, figuring out, um, you know, like I said, that, that relational piece to the, to the, uh, patient and, um, helping them walk with courage and with compassion mm -hmm. through their, their difficult times. Um, I feel most connected and alive and that's where I, I thrive. So, and I'm dealing with a lot of heavy topics and emotional topics and a lot about death, which people don't want to talk about um, mm -hmm. or really think about. Um, but I think I get um, to um, a very vulnerable place with my patients and talk about um, what matters most at um, the end of their life and how do we um, make that happen for them and how do we connect them to um, their goals. So That's I would awesome. actually say the opposite. Okay. Now I've got two stay-at-home dads at the table. What is it like as stay-at-home dads in today's world? <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're looking at me funny, but um, just can you talk about like how do you, uh, in that kind of position in our culture, how do you cultivate courage, compassion, and connection? We drink a lot of beer. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> and that creates vulnerability, which is courageous. It's liquid courage. We get up on stage and we do a lot of good karaoke songs, which is all true. We drop our kids off at the YMCA so we can get an hour of alone time in the gym, pretending to train, right? That's right. So that our muscles could make us compassionate for those who don't have muscles. <laughs> and we're connecting somehow with ourselves. Right. Okay. 
to in a, in a serious on a serious note, I, I, stay at home dads are very different from stay at home moms. I got connected early in Denver four years ago with a stay at home mom group, specifically in a play group, which was just my extroverted self in a park who met somebody who happened to have a connection because we went to school together back in the day and then we didn't know, mm-hmm. and so that was easy for me. The dad part took years to get into. Now I do have some good stay at home dad friends, but it t- it did take a while. Mm-hmm. Are we vulnerable? Are we courageous? I don't. I wouldn't say so. I love these guys. They're great, and I see them on a, on a regular basis. I saw them today at the park. It's always at the park, by the way. <laughs> We're eating tacos. Rob and I had tacos for lunch together. Cool. Some of the uh, best tacos in Denver. By they the way. are amazing tacos. <laughs> yeah. Can we give a shout out to Go California ahead. Carnitas? I think we should. Yeah, they're great. I love you guys. <laughs> and there is your vulnerability right there yeah. tacos but yeah you know, i i think i think it just takes m- not for all men and not f- and i don't want to put men and women in categories but the stay-at-home dad crowd is a it's 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 a marathon yeah whereas i think for the stay-at-home moms it's it's an easier sprint they have their own issues don't get me wrong but it's harder for the the men to connect connect on what way like with other dads or with their kids or how's no that? not with their kids I, th- I think yeah actually in some ways i think we connect better with our kids sorry moms and uh, no here's why because we don't have the guilt and the shame and the we- so moms have mom guilt regardless if you stay at home with your kids or you work full-time doesn't matter moms have mom guilt dads i have not met one stay-at-home dad which there are many who has a who has dad guilt we have fun with our kids and regardless if they're messy or their their clothes or look a certain way or we throw good parties or bad parties. It doesn't matter. Dads don't work. Don't, don't operate that way. And that's also cultural. That's our mm-hmm. worldview of how yeah. women should be and men should be. And so in some ways we do have it easier. I would say the vulnerability comes with connecting with other men, mm, okay. not with the kids. Yeah. So to kind of tie into like being a stay at home dad for my wife and I, Stephanie just recently moved to Denver this past August. And for, for many reasons, uh, we, we made the move from where we were before because it was really difficult for us to connect with, with, with the kind of just the overall culture. And uh, it was actually our hometown. And uh, we returned there for, I guess, four years for my wife to complete the, the rest of her training. And um, so prior to her um, starting those, the, the kind of that four-year stint of her training, we, uh, we were on another it took us out of out of uh, out of our hometown for several years, and that was kind of where where I kind of described kind of the deconstruction of of my faith and just a lot of a lot of cultural experiences and community experiences that really changed me and my way of thinking um, in, in a lot of different ways. And so, whenever we went back to our hometown for those three or four years, it was. It was really difficult for us to find community, and what was what was bizarre about it, and somewhat surprising, was that we had tons of friends because we lived there, we grew up there, and so we had all these friends there. But it was so challenging to connect with them because, like what you were saying, like we were just we were just in a different place than we were when we when we left, and so it made those relationships like just very very tough, and. Um, and especially as being a stay-at-home dad, most most of my guy buddies, I, I'm trying to think, did I have any guy friends that were stay-at-home dads? Mike, but I mean, he worked too. But so, I mean, um, you know, finding finding community of, 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 of guys that were kind of in a, in a similar position that I was in, 
um, was also very challenging within that culture. And so, so we began kind of having discussions about, you know, what it might look like to find seek out community that kind of, you know, that maybe was a little bit more, um, suitable to us or, you know, maybe compatible. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want Ryan to get too big of a head because I know Janelle already gave him lots of, lots of props and love. Um, but, uh, the ego needs lots of love, <laughs> feed it. But certainly our relationship with, uh, with Ryan and his wife were, were, were one of the, the big reasons why we started kind of exploring, um, the possibility of, of, of moving out to Denver. And, um, and so, so yeah, so, I mean, so, so moving out here has in many ways been a, a very good experience for us in terms of finding community and just people that are in a, in a more similar place, especially as being a stay at home dad. I feel like, you know, like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of us that, that hang out at the park on a, on a, on a frequent basis. And so that, that makes it, that makes it easier, you know? So. Well, we are getting close to done, but um, in this, in the preview, I read for you 10 things that we work on to cultivate. So I'm going to put everybody on on alert here so i'm going to read the list of 10 things and i want you to kind of grab onto one and just kind of talk about like how you have worked to um how this thing resonates with you most or which one do you struggle with uh the most so the 10 things are authenticity self-compassion resilient spirit gratitude and joy intuition and trusting faith creativity, play and rest, calm and stillness, meaningful work, laughter, song, and dance. If we don't have laughter, song, and dance as a society, I don't care how we feel we are in the world of progression and look how awesome we are. We have to laugh. We have to sing. We have to dance. Even if we're shitty at laughing and singing and dancing, (laughs) get on that stage and do some karaoke. And we talk about this, Rob, because Rob likes karaoke too. Does it matter at the end of the night who's good or who's bad? No, it's about being free up there. Whatever. <laughs> I will dance while you sing but, karaoke. But, oh, but so this is about letting go of being cool and always right. in control. And when you're on that stage, nobody's really cool. And if you are, nobody cares. And I'm just using that as an example. Because I think in yeah. so many ways, when you're, so when you're at a concert, uh, and you're, let's say somebody else is performing. There's something about being being in there, and you're singing along. And you're kind of swaying with the music with your friends. Where there's somebody who tells an inappropriate joke, and you laugh your asses off in a community. That's there's there's just moments like that where you're like, yes, we need more of that. Let's not take ourselves so seriously. Mm-hmm. I feel like we have to control how the night's going to go because when you laugh, laughter is actually the, one of the greatest moments of vulnerability. Right. And I actually heard this. This is a side note, but how a lot of men. This is a sexist moment. Don't like female comedians because they don't want to laugh because they're vulnerable in front of a comedian who's a female. Oh, interesting. That's a study that's out there yeah. somewhere. You can look it up. But yes, do laugh. You know, do dance, do sing, and you know, be be silly. Don't take yourselves too seriously. So that one for me is the one that I love the most. And especially, I, I want to tag in there. If you come from a faith tradition that restricted these things, it is critical that you learn how to do these things. Okay, you don't have to do it in front of anybody if you don't want to, but dance, move your body, like get to know your body and move in it and be comfortable in it and laugh and sing and, and just enjoy life. Because I think a lot of us 
were given messages that those things were wrong or evil or prideful or sinful. And that's just baloney. So get out there and dance. So to tie back into being a stay at home dad, I, I have to say I, dancing and singing songs and being silly with, 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 uh, with toddlers. I mean, it's, I mean, it's just kind of, I mean, it's just what you do. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's, there, there's a lot of vulner, vulnerable moments as a dad where, you know, your kids are like, dance with me, daddy, dance with, you know, like, let's sing the song, you know? So, um, and they, yeah. ex- and they accept it. Yeah. And they think you're, they think you're, uh, Ryan's a terrible dancer, but Caroline, she thinks I'm awesome. She thinks you're awesome. <laughs> Especially when you're dressed like a mermaid. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Awesome. <laughs> Rob loves my dance moves. <laughs> what else? Which other ones resonate? There's actually a few that stand out to me, um, but I'm going to condense five and six. Um, cultivating intuition and trusting faith, and then cultivating creativity. Um, and those kind of go hand in hand for me. That talks about um, letting go of the need for certainty and letting go of comparison. So I'd say that the both of those kind of go hand in hand, at least for me, in that um, at least I, I come from a belief system that things are laid out. A plus B always equals C. And if you do A and B, you will always get C. And then you kind of realize, like... Eh, it's not always that way. Like you might do A and B, and you end up with a square, and you're like, "How the heck did I get here?" And um, sometimes it's that's just how it goes. And so sometimes it's a little unsettling. Um, I think even beyond faith tradition, just I think in modern day society in the United States, um, it's if you do this, you get your education, you go to school, and you do things right, like you'll end up with like a really good life, and everybody will be happy, and all your bills will be paid, and then. It's like, you know, like, especially it's even with, especially with my generation too, like, um, we were those nineties kids that was, that were fed all that, that feel good crap. And we bought that. I mean, we're kids, right? So, um, you know, and then you kind of realize like, yeah, well, some of these people grew up and graduated right during that recession and just like, well, nope, doesn't always work that way. And, uh, it sucks. And it sucks for people in all different generations because um, it happens different ways, but it's, it's beyond even just faith traditions. I see these are things I struggle with because just like I'm 23 and I'm still, I'm still completing my undergrad. And part of it was because I served a mission, you know, and part of it is because I have to work and, um, and it's fine. Like I'm not, I'm, I don't, in any means like feel that I've been done wrong but I look at other people that are my age that are already graduating or starting a career and yeah they didn't do they didn't go to Guatemala for for a while and do you know these missionary things and they did school but I, I look at how I'm behind a lot of people that are already my age and I oh man that gets me like even though I'm working towards it and I and I, and I work hard it's just like it's just like knowing that I'm behind a bunch of other people uh, sometimes like makes me feel really bad. Like I feel like, dang, like, you know, even though I have like other reasons too, it's just, I don't know, it still like sets me back. And so that's, that's one thing. It's like the uncertainty of like, well, I need to do this because I need to get this specific outcome and knowing that like, well, might not happen that way, but like, look, you've already come this far. Like you'll figure it out if it doesn't end up the way you want it to. And then just like comparing myself, like, okay, when it doesn't end up the way I want it to, 
that's okay. This is my story. It's not the other person's story or the other person's life. And cool, I get to manage it myself. But like, it's kind of hard. Maybe it's maybe it's just being young and trying to figure out what's going on in your life and trying to set a solid path, or just like you know, people say like women always compare themselves and maybe maybe yeah, that's just part of being a woman, or it's just. It's too much of that that darn Facebook. Everybody <laughs> putting all their cool pictures of their cool Tahiti vacations. I'm just kidding. I don't really want to go to Tahiti, but I'm just saying, like, there's there's so many more ways of, of comparing ourselves. So it's like, yeah, it's something I struggle with, and so something I want to change. But yep. little by little, baby steps, right? Yep. Baby steps to the elevator. You got it. So probably one of my big ones is uh, self compassion. Um, just striving like i've been striving since i started school and and often those are really good goals but um you know being in accelerated programs puts you in constant competition being a musician puts you in constant competition and um i think that took its toll on my belief and my own abilities um and then realizing now looking back on some things that happened of you know the 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 work of implicit bias around gender in certain cultures and certain settings um, leaves you really wondering what what are you what are you worth um, and so I think constantly we have to um, be working on that and and I know it's total it's different some personality types don't really just doesn't really phase them mine is a type that does and so just learning how to one take care of myself making that a priority, being okay with saying no to things or um, prioritizing something I want to do once in a while above the needs of others. That is so, so hard. Um, and there's lots of uh, church messages in there and faith messages. And so I think what she's calling for here is just being uh, in, in many ways, maybe say mindful of, of yourself and, and how you're doing and how you move forward through that. So um so I'd probably say something I really strive to practice is the uh gratitude and joy. Um and just really living each day as a new day and being thankful for um that I have air in my lungs and I can use two legs to walk upstairs and that I have had a freaking amazing trophy husband <laughs> and uh, two gorgeous kids. Um, I'm, I'm really blessed. Um, but also, um, again, just my work makes me um, really grateful for um, what I get to do. And um, we talk a lot about in my profession, self-care and just really making sure that you are, you know, re renewing yourself and, um, and not getting burnout. And, um, and so I think one of the ways I do that is practicing gratitude and joy and just being pretty mindful about, um, the things that I, I have and that, um, I've worked hard for and that I'm blessed with, but, um, that I know that could go away at any, any moment, but, um, but just living each day um, to the fullest because we're not always guaranteed each day. I think she nailed it. 
working on gratitude and joy is pretty important. Um, I just want to say thank you for listening to us be vulnerable tonight. And um, if you haven't run into Brene Brown yet, uh, get out there, get her book. Uh, you can. This one's the short one, The Gifts of Imperfection. Uh, you can see her TED Talk on vulnerability. It was one of the most watched TED Talks ever. And um, if you want to share any of your stories with us, please contact us on the website or on Facebook or whatever. Um, and um, let us know what it means for you to be vulnerable in your own communities and in your own lives. So thank you very much. Cheers. And we'll see you next time.